Well, you should uh, be able to get your hands on a very simple handout for this evening. If you're one of those people that get stressed out by blanks, then this one should not stress you much. Um, Tonight is probably the most scripture I've ever tried to include in, in, in a talk, so I thought... I thought about seven minutes before I came in here, why don't I slap those down so you'll have some of those for your reference. Uh, you don't need that. You can just listen, um, but, it, but it may be helpful for you. And if you like blanks, well, then this will keep you awake. Um, so that's just for your reference. When I was a boy, when I was a little boy, I was, uh, like most boys that I knew, I wanted to be and act just like my dad. I remember sitting in church watching how my father would sit. I remember the pastor would sit with his legs crossed really narrow and my dad would sit with his legs crossed really wide and sprawled out. So how do you think I crossed my legs? Sprawled out like my dad. I remember wanting to be able to cut firewood, you know, with the big eight pound splitting maw. I wanted to be able to cut it as well as he could something I still can't do as effectively as him. I, wa- I wanted to be strong like my dad. Now, now, not all of my efforts to imitate my dad were a good idea. My dad has this uh, great black hair that's a little bit straighter than mine. And, and in the 90s, he used to slick it back. Did anyone slick back their hair? Terry? Roy? Nathan? All right. Uh, Hey, I, I was, and so, you know, I, from fourth to sixth grade, I slicked back my hair as well, and it, it wasn't quite as effective. And uh, it's not something that many sixth graders did, and I have this memory, there was a girl that I kind of had a crush on who was teasing me for my hair, and she reached over to mess it up, and I said, hey, don't do that, it's taken me two years to train my hair to look like this. <laughs> And because uh, my dad said, you have to train it to go backwards. And she laughed at me. Man, did she laugh at me, right? Like, uh, uh, he's my dad and, and I, I'm his son. I think those who know me and my dad pretty well would say I'm definitely my father's son. I, uh, you know, hairstyles excluded. Um, you know, I'm pretty proud of that. I've been told I take bites like my dad. Papa Stan bites, my kids call them, that are too big. I eat popcorn like my dad, you know, by the handful. Not, there's people that eat one piece at a time. I don't understand, right? Um, and it's a habit I've noticed that my son is already uh, going to carry on, just handfuls of popcorn. Unfortunately, I've been told I'm inheriting my dad's adult humor, which I have teased him about all through my teenage years, something I need to work on. Right? I love the same stuff my dad loves. I love, I love loud thunderstorms and really, really hot food and lots of vegetables and skies with puffy cumulus clouds, just like my dad. I think this is all good. It's, it's how it's supposed to be, right? My dad and I have plenty of differences. I'm two inches taller than him. Uh, but I'm my father's son. And in many ways, you can look at me and you can see my dad. One of the major themes that runs throughout the Bible is this theme of sonship. The significance and the importance of being a son. And it's the theme that we will take up together tonight. We're going to try to trace the theme of sonship throughout the storyline of the Bible. And you'll remember, hopefully, that that in this series we're, we're studying the Bible not so much by looking at one individual passage, but by zooming out and looking at the Bible like it's a tapestry. 
with thematic threads that weave throughout the story. And tonight we'll take up this topic of sonship. And to give you a taste of the significance of the role of son in the Bible, perhaps you'll permit me to begin by reading to you a portion of Luke's gospel, the genealogy. And, and every text I have is not on your handout, so don't, don't, don't look for them all. But uh, l- listen to this from Luke's gospel. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. And being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathet, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janani, the son of Joseph, the son of Matthias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Elsli, the son of Nagai. And if I'll skip down 15 verses, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mathael, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we come to you as your children crying out for help. And we know that as a father, you are eager to hear our cries. Tonight, our, our prayer is that you would help us to understand your word, and not only understand it, but help us to see the beauty of Christ revealed therein, and help us to apply these truths to our lives. We pray in your name, amen. Well, like all the themes that we've taken up so far, the theme of sonship begins at creation. Actually, like the other themes, we would have to say it begins before creation, right? Because the Son has existed in eternal relationship with the Father. But let me first give you a quick introduction to this concept of sonship, particularly as it existed in the ancient world, right? We in the 21st century Western world have some different notions. And like, so for us, only about 5% of, uh, of Westerners, Western sons, go into the same profession as their dad, right? It's not as common. But for most of history, you know this wasn't the case, By and large, the majority would adopt their father's vocations. The son of a farmer would probably be a farmer, and the son of a blacksmith would probably be a blacksmith, and, and, you know, on and on and on, on it goes. The father's vocation was a part of their identity. Jesus was identified as the son of a carpenter. Eventually, presumably after Joseph died, we think that he died while Jesus was alive. Jesus was not identified as the son of a carpenter, but as a carpenter. Professionally speaking, there's a sense of where throughout history you could look at the son and learn a great deal about the father. Professionally. But the same is true of character in some sense. In many ways, we can really relate to this cultural pattern, right? We, we understand, we have an expectation that a son is expected to honor his father in the way that he lives. The Proverbs speak of this, and culturally, this is broadly accepted. My wife uh, tells me with fondness how when she was a child, and even as she was a teenager and a college student, Before she would leave the house, her father would say to her, be an honor to me. 
be an honor to me. And that was all he had to say most of the time. Right? Like, we, we get that. A child's behavior reflects on the character of the father. And that is a major way that the Bible uses and picks up and develops the theme of sonship. There are many different ways we see this throughout the Bible, but that is perhaps one of the most significant. Our actions associate us with our fathers. Uh, or our actions disassociate us with our father. This is why Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called what? Sons of God. I, I think one of the things Jesus is saying here is, is that whenever humans are peacemakers, we are acting like God, the ultimate peacemaker, and therefore we are acting, we are living as sons of God. The same dynamic appears in Luke chapter 6, one of my favorite passages where, where Jesus instructs, love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, for your reward will be great and you will be called sons of the Most High. Why? For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Right? So, so when we love our enemies, we are loving like sons of God. Because he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Do you see? Well, Jesus made this point even more explicitly. He made this point when he was talking with the Jews, right? Of course, Jews biologically are sons of Abraham and, uh, as we'll see in a minute, sons, sons of God. But as Romans 4 tells us, Jewishness does not make you a son of Abraham. Faith does. I mean, think about Abraham. Abraham was a man who, if, if he was characterized by anything, it was his faith but look over with me at John chapter 8. I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bible a little bit more often than I normally do. So you can keep up if you like, or if, if that distracts you, you can just listen. That's fine as well. That's why you have those references for later. But in John chapter 8, I want you to see this interesting dynamic. John chapter 8, verse 39 So, so, he, so Jesus is talking to the Jews, and they answered Jesus, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to him, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the, you're not, you are doing the works your father did, they said to him. We were not born of sexual morality. We have one father, even God. But then Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God. Right? Jesus challenged the Jews by saying, Hey, you're not actually Abraham's children because you're not acting like Abraham. In fact, if you look down at verse 44, Jesus said who their father really was. Look at this startling verse. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires, for he is a murderer from the beginning. Right? Their actions reveal who their father really is. Though they were biologically or ethnically sons of Abraham, morally, they were children of the devil. 
All right, so this is this important biblical theme. Our behavior, especially spiritually, reveals the character of our Father. So the Son of God, a Son of God will reveal the character of God. And the Son of the Devil will reveal the character of the Devil. So if we were just to pause to, for quick application, what is the best way that you can display the glory of God? Obey Him. Act like Him. Sons of God reflect the character of God and the sons of the devil reflect the character of the devil. And as I've alluded to, this is a pattern that was established since creation. But let's move on and consider how Adam is the son of God. Adam, son of God. In multiple places throughout the Bible, we see Adam referred to as the son of God. We've just heard here in Luke's genealogy that Adam originated as Adam, the son of God. That's how the genealogy ends. But the creation account in Genesis 1, you can go ahead and turn there, builds this out in much more detail. If you look in Genesis chapter 1, we'll, we'll take a closer look at how this, this develops as we think about what it means to be made in the image of God. A very familiar concept, but often hard to explain. Genesis 1.26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our own image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Image. The image or likeness of God is how man was made. So, so in the ancient world, an image was a statue, right? It, it was often set up, uh, like a political image would be set up in a region where there was a ruler, but perhaps his territory was so vast that, that he couldn't be everywhere at once. It's this pesky problem that human rulers have, unlike God. Right? They can't even rule in all the places of their dominion, right? And so they would set up, uh, he would set up his image or his likeness to represent his rule. Now, Nero rules this land. But you'll notice, you'll notice that in this very next sentence in verse 26 that we have this association of man ruling. They are to have, so being made in the image of God and likeness of God, man is to have dominion. We see that immediately over the, over the fish and the birds of the heavens. Man's dominion appears again there in verse 28. And if you were to flip over to chapter 2 verse 15, you'll see man's dominion expressed in another way. Where the Bible says that the Lord put Adam, put man in the garden to work it and to keep it. Right? That's dominion language. My point is this. Since Working and keeping are functions of dominion. We understand that when God created man in his image, what that means, at least in part, in significant part, is that he created us to govern the world on his behalf. To exercise rule in the way that he would. So if we want to express dominion for God, if we want to be like God in the world, that is, we should live in such a way that you can look at man 
and how he lives. Look at man and how he governs the world. Look at man and how he relates to other humans. And by looking at man, you would know what God is like. You would know something of his character. Now you might ask, okay, what does that have to do with sonship? Well, in the Bible, image and likeness are very closely associated with the idea of being a son. If you look over at Genesis 5 verse 3, we see this really clearly. This is after the fall, and the Bible says, When Adam had lived 130, 130 years, he fathered a son, look at the word, in his own likeness, after his image. Right, we just saw both of those words. And he named him Seth. It's because image and sonship is very closely related. For God to say that he made us in his image is very closely associated with calling us a son of God. Adam's son was Seth, and he was in Adam's image. Seth was in the image of Adam because he was the son of Adam. You could say he was the spitting image of his father. Okay, now let's put this together. All right. We've already said that a son reflects the character and the likeness of his father. And we've seen that God made Adam, to, uh, representing all humanity, to be a ruler. He made us in his image to be a ruler. So what can we conclude from this? Adam and Eve were created to represent God, to reflect his character in how they lived. Adam and Eve were created to show that they were God's children by living righteously. Their whole purpose, the purpose of humanity is to reflect the character of God. Well, I probably don't need to tell you that Adam and Eve failed to do this. They rebelled against God and instead of following his law, they chose to go their own way. Instead of reflecting the image of God, they must have found a mirror and become infatuated with themselves because they followed their own way. But even after the fall, the image of God is not lost. Right? We just saw that Seth was in the image of Adam. Even after sin, a son does not cease to be a son. But he can be a poor son, a bad son, can he? And we see how this works, right? The fact that we are sons of Adam, who is the son of God. The fact that we are made in the image of God, friends, it shows us, it shows us who we ought to be and how we ought to be. You were not made for sin. You weren't. None of it. You were not made for rebellion. You were made to know and to reflect the holiness of God. And so Adam, the son of God, failed to reflect his father, God. And all of Adam's children were like him. And we followed in his footsteps. So Adam was a failed son of God, so to speak. And so the Bible tells us as we move along in the story that Israel inherited the role. So let's think now about Israel, the son of God. Flip over with me to Exodus chapter 4. 
This is an important text, one you might not be quite as familiar with, so I encourage you to flip there to Exodus 4. I'll start reading in verse 22. So God is speaking to Moses, telling him to go talk to Pharaoh, and listen to this language. Then you, Moses, shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn, what's the word? Son. So Israel is the son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Did you notice what God called Israel? His firstborn son. And that if Pharaoh wouldn't let God's firstborn son go, God would judge him by killing all of the firstborn sons in Egypt. And that's exactly what God did. But did you notice the plan that God had for his son? It's so that he would go serve me. Man, that sounds a little, a little like Adam's role, like Adam's job in the garden. And we don't have time to look at all that tonight, but a broader examination of God's plan for Israel is that he intended for Israel to be a light to the nations. That not only were they to worship God and make sacrifices and to serve God, but they were to live among the nations in such a way that the nations could look upon Israel and know what God is like. Wow, that sounds like Israel is in the image of God, the Son of God. So God rescues his son Israel, and he goes off into the wilderness to worship the Lord. And how does he do. How did it go? Not very well. Hosea chapter 11 is a critical passage. So this is well after the history of Israel is underway. And you can read this or follow along or just listen. Listen to what God says about Israel. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away, though. And they kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. There's a couple things I want you to notice about that passage. Again, first of all, Israel is called God's son, still, or a child. And you'll notice that there's a reference to the Exodus, right? Out of Egypt, he called his son. And we'll come back to that in a moment. But this is enough for us to see that Israel was a failed son. Adam was a failed son, and now Israel was a failed son. So who's next? Well, next, King David inherits the role. David, son of God. If you'll turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7, which is God's covenant that he made with David. It's the Davidic covenant. It's really important. We can see this quite clearly. And what you need to notice is that God's covenant with David is in terms of father-son relationship. 2 Samuel 7 verse 13. God explicitly says, He, that is his son, it's interesting who he's talking about, He shall build a house for my name. And I will build, I will establish the throne of his kingdom for how long? Forever. And I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. 
Now, we don't have time to look at all this, and that's, that's disappointing. But you'll notice that the terms here are strictly along the lines of God being a faithful father, and David, or Solomon, perhaps, in this instance, the son of David, being a faithful son. Okay, so think about it. This is real important. For the covenant to remain intact, and we, we could go on and read about his promise of everlasting love. If, if the promise is the covenant is going to be intact, God has to be a faithful father, and David, or Solomon, has to be a faithful son. And then verse 16 and what follows is incredible. Even though the son, the son king must be faithful, look what God says. He says, your throne will be or shall be established forever. Okay, if I'm understanding this right, here's what God is doing. God is promising an eternal throne and he's promising an eternal love. If... The father holds up his end of the deal, and if the son holds up his end of the deal. The father has to be faithful, and the son, the son king, has to be faithful. We could look at that from Deuteronomy 17 and other places, but second, uh, in Psalm chapter 2, this is one of the best places it's seen. You'll, you'll recognize this, where Psalm speaks to this promise, where it says, And the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, if your head's spinning, that's okay. We'll work on wrapping this up in a little bit. But think about it with me this far. Adam was a poor son who failed to rule and show his father's character. Israel was a poor son who failed to show his father's character. And now, the same is true with the kings. Well, the same is true with Israel, and the same is true with Saul. You remember Saul, the disaster he was. But now King David has inherited the role of son. But how did David do? If you were to ask Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, how David did, what would he say? If you were to ask Uriah, what is God like, judging by David's character, what is God like? How would we judge David's life? Did David use his power to rule the way God would have ruled? No. David failed too. But part of God's covenant to David seemed to make a provision for this, right? That's why he said that when he sins, I'll discipline him. And then the role of king's son is passed down from the king father to the king's son, right? So the, the, the covenant was passed down to Solomon and on and on and on. Well, how did Solomon do? Man, he had a thing for women too, Right? You get the picture. On down the line of kings, things go from bad to worse. In fact, some of the kings who were to be the image, the representation of God, what did they do? Well, they went and made other little images of false gods and they set them up. Do you see how broken it is? And the story drags on. And it seems like that God's promise to David will never be realized because there is no faithful son. And there is no faithful king. Where can we find the faithful son king that shows us what God is like? It seems like there's no hope. The nation was torn apart. Everybody's dying. People love idols instead of God. 
But the prophets have a word of hope. And all throughout the prophets, they called out for Israel to hold on to hope for a son. You don't have to turn there. This is a familiar passage. So just listen as I read this Christmas passage, supposedly, with new ears. For to us a child is born, to us a what? Son is given. And the government, the kingdom, will be on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of who? David. And over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth till forevermore. Who will do this? God will do this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. They promised a son will be born. This son will be king. And this son, just like God's promise to David, will rule forever. How do you rule forever if you keep dying? That's Solomon's problem. That's Josiah's problem. Death keeps getting in the way of this eternal kingdom. But this son will rule in a way that will never end, and he will be the one to establish the eternal throne of David. So let's just review. I know this is a whirlwind. The Bible's a big book. Adam, son of God, failed. Israel, son of God, failed. David, son of God, failed. So can I please read to you Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The very, so this is the first gospel written, first verse of the first gospel. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus, the Son of God. I cannot even, it is, almost, it is frustrating. You cannot even imagine how frustrating it is for me to only have 10 more minutes to try to show you all the ways that Jesus fulfills the Son of God, that role. The Gospels make it clear. Jesus is the Son of God. And so here's what you need to grasp. It is not just that Jesus is the Son of God, as in Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. That is true. That is very, very, very important. Very, 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 very important, right? But that is not the only piece. It is also true that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, fulfills all that Adam Son of God, and all of his children were made to be. Adam was made in the image of God. But what does Colossians say about Jesus? Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Adam made in the image of God, that's cool. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that's better. Jesus is better. Hebrews 1 says something similar, that Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. And he came to succeed where humanity has failed. Do you remember the prophecy of Hosea, what he said about Israel? He said, out of Egypt, I called my son. Of course, he's talking about Israel coming out of slavery. But man, that sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? And Joseph rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt 
and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Matthew chapter 2. Also Luke chapter 2. And as Jesus grew, he proved. He said he was the son of God and he proved that he was the son of God. He showed us he's the son of God. John five nineteen. this blew my mind. I'd never thought of this until this week. Jesus said, whatever the father does, the son does likewise. He wasn't just the spitting image. He is, was, was, will be God. So whatever the father does, the son does. Because he's God. Let's see if I can... Jesus wasn't just a, uh, a replica. He wasn't just a reflection. Jesus showed he was the son of God. He showed it with his life. Even the pagan centurion in Mark 15, as Jesus was dying, the Bible says he saw that in this way Jesus breathed his last, and this man said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Jesus fulfilled Israel's role as the Son of God. He fulfilled it when he went out into the wilderness to serve the Lord. Unlike Adam, unlike Israel, Jesus didn't fall prey to the serpent. Satan understood that Jesus had an important role as the Son of God. That's why Jesus, Satan's very first words in the temptation were this. Listen, Mark, uh, Matthew 4. The very first words Satan tempted him with. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Jesus did what Adam, the Son of God, couldn't do. He said no to the serpent. And he came out of the wilderness triumphant. And so God, at the baptism, the Father said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus was also the true Davidic King. Do you remember how God said that he would discipline his son, the son king, when he sinned, when he committed iniquity. Jesus took on our iniquity. Jesus bore the wrath of God, for the Bible says, by his stripes we are healed. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he, Romans 1 says, I'm, I'll try not to go there, uh, Romans 1 says that when he rose from the dead, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God. I only have time to show you one point, so I agonized over what to pick, and I've chose Hebrews chapter 1. So turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. If you're not getting all the details, that's okay. Try to grasp the big picture. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5. I've never, this passage has always been hard for me to understand until I understood this concept. Verse 5 says, Of which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Can you see how Jesus is explicitly connected to the covenant of David? This is fulfilling exactly what Psalm 2 says. It's saying Jesus fulfills this. Look, if you don't see that, look down at verse 8. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is how long? Forever and ever, and the scepter of uprightness and the scepter of your kingdom. 
For you, verse 9 basically says, you did not sin like the rest of the kings. Jesus was declared to be the true Davidic king. God the Father, the faithful covenant keeper, and Jesus, the faithful son king. Do you see how Jesus fulfilled the Davidic covenant? God the Son became man in order to provide a faithful Son King so that God's kingdom would be established forever on the throne of David. Jesus is the true Davidic King and all of these promises, all of the promises, find their culmination and fulfillment in Christ. Jesus comes to be the faithful Adam. Jesus comes to be the faithful Israel. And Jesus comes to be the faithful king. So what does all this mean for you? It means a whole other sermon. But I'm not going to preach that sermon. I'm going to let you do some of the application. But let me just point out this. I mean, is this just an interesting intellectual exercise that overwhelms? What does this show us? Well, for one... This clearly shows us that we who were created in the image of God have failed in our only purpose. Right? Have you ever seen those memes? You had one job. Right? You had one job. We have been been disobedient sons and are now subject to the wrath of the Father. But if I could, let me ask you to turn to one more passage tonight. Romans chapter 8. One more passage, bear with me. I want you to see this as we move towards a close. And if while you're turning, would it be okay, church, can I preach the gospel to you again tonight? The glorious news of the gospel is this. Sons and daughters of Adam, you who hear me, you who because of sin have known Satan as your father, you can be adopted as sons of God. Romans chapter chapter 8 tells us this. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you do not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you, church, have received a spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies. He bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. For it's Christ has come to rescue you. You willful orphans. He's come to adopt you. He's come to get you. And because of the work, because of his work, God has made a way for you to legally be brought into the family of God as a son. And if you're a son, you're written into the will. In other words, because God didn't have a will, you're an heir. You're an heir. With all the rights and privileges of Jesus Christ, the Son himself. The Bible says we'll even reign with him. We were made to be rulers in the first place, messed it up. Now we'll reign with Christ. Those who have been adopted as children of God are loved like a son. So you're secure. Even though we don't reflect him as we ought to now. 
But God's plan makes provision for that too. If you look at 28 and 29, and we know that for those who love God, he works all things together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And listen, church, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of his son. Did you hear that? God's plan is to change all of his children into the image of his son. Well, the son is the image of God. Well, here we are in the image of God. He's changing us to look like Adam, the son of God, before the fall. You could say he's recreating us. He's re-Genesis 1-ing us. And one day, his redemptive work of sanctification will be complete. So near the end of the Bible, we read this. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And to the one who conquers, he will have this inheritance, this heritage. I will be his God, and he will be my son. Let's pray. Perhaps there is no more important application, Lord, than we pause and just marvel at Christ. And marvel at your plan to take your enemies, estranged from you by our rebellion, bring us back into your home, put a ring on our fingers, a robe on our neck, kill the fatted calf, and call us sons. Thank you for this. Help us to live reflecting your glory in all that we do. We ask this in your name. Amen. Here dismissed church. Go in peace.